Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we are talking with Nancy Davis Coe, author of The Thank You Project and host of the podcast, The Midlife Mixtape, about gratitude, aging, and everything in between. But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about what we're thankful for this year. So, um, Steph, as I was looking up Nancy and figuring out her conversation, I was thinking about a few years ago, of course, I have no idea because COVID was 10 years and I don't know how long ago this was. I, it was around New Year's and I decided I was going to do a full year of doing an act of kindness every day. And I wanted it to be above and beyond what I would ordinarily do. So if I made donations to organizations that I always gave, that didn't count. It had to be like something new. And so I did it for, I don't know how long I ended up doing it for. And then I started feeling like I was observing the world for an opportunity. And it just, it started to feel a little weird. Like, what is my motive here? Like my motive was... It was so much fun. I paid for people's coffee behind me. None of it involved, nothing was extraordinary, but everything was such a happy moment. Like the person that I paid for would turn around and say to the person behind them, I'll pay for you. Or like, I mean, just these really lovely things that, that felt like this is so much fun. And then all of a sudden it became a game of its own. I don't know. I couldn't do it anymore. I felt like maybe the motive doesn't matter. But maybe it's a little weird to start your day with, how do I check off? What's going to be my thing today that allows me to check off done for my commitment to the year? And I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, that's funny. I can, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I remember you doing it. I totally remember it when you started talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah. But yeah, then it like <laughs> the goal, it's not that the goal, well, it became more part of the um on the to-do list for the day. Which I don't know if it, I mean, if it makes, if it makes. And does it matter? Does it matter? But I was thinking about 50 letters. Like if you make a commitment, which is Nancy's story of writing 50 letters to people of gratitude. Like if I said I was going to do that, I feel like at letter 12, I'd be like, oh my God, I made a commitment to do 50. And now I've got to do 50 because that's what we do. We do what we say we're going to do. But like, uh, who should I do? What do I have to, you know, like kind of this desperate need to finish the goal that is unconnected to the, the kind of like the underlying mission. Well, and like you just said, like, does it matter? And it, it's hitting on my brain and I have to think what the, what the analogy is. I'm like, it keeps like floating in and floating out. It's like that um, where you start exercising the muscle so that you can feel good or do good, but then you start to get those feelings before you even do it. There's like, um, oh shoot. Like anticipatory something. Yeah. Yeah. So then it's like, to your point, like, so who cares? Right? Like it's still, it's the goodness of it and it's the act of it. And it's the fact that it inspired somebody else to do it. Right. They don't know that that morning you woke up and you're like, ah, oh, man, I got it. Right. They don't know that's your backstory in your head, but nobody else knows that. Your point of the muscle is a good one because maybe I needed to weather that emotion of feeling like it was too rote and that I didn't feel sincere yeah. enough. And maybe 
like a week later, that was going to be gone. Maybe I just needed to right. like give the muscle a rest for a few days and then pick it up again and see if I'm stronger than I was before. I might make a commitment right here, right now. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know. That, do it. Don't do it. Yeah, no. no, I am. I don't know if it's going to be the letter writing, but it's either the letter writing or what I tried before, because I did really get a lot out of what I tried before until it, it was faltering. So I don't know. I'm, I'm doing one of them. I'll let you know next time. Well, so the letter writing, I hadn't thought about this in a couple of years. So my dad served in the Coast Guard, and there's this thing you can do. It's called the Honor Tour, and they get veterans, and you have, like, a companion. And your companion, there's, like, funny rules. Like, your companion can't be older than, like, 90, but they can't be younger than, like, see, there was some reason us kids couldn't accompany him, but I can't remember. So he had a friend of his go with him, and they take them down to D.C. and see the memorial and— But part of that was we were asked to write letters to my dad, as were the grandkids and other friends. And my dad knew nothing about that piece. I'm going to get all welled up. But on the way, after they do the tour, they're sitting on the bus and the guy in charge says, okay, mail call. And my dad's like, mail call? Like what they used to do in the service. He didn't know what, he's like, why do they do a mail? Who would get mail? We're gone for like 12 hours. This is crazy. And they they hand my dad this envelope. And in the envelope are all the letters. That is so beautiful. Okay, so (laughs) did anyone, like, were there, I don't know when this happened for your family, but, like, was there a picture taken or a video of him opening these? Like, No, no. It's just the story of him telling us, and he was, he'll start crying, he's so sentimental. But, like, and the gentleman who accompanied him, you know, he, my dad was telling him about each kid after he read each letter. And he, I mean, he said, next to my wedding and the birth of our children, <laughs> the best day of my life. Wow. That is, so that goes to her story, like the power yeah. of sharing, like not eulogizing somebody after they die, but actually letting them know while they're alive what they mean to you. It's such a beautiful idea, but I do think it takes some courage. I think she was naturally somebody who did that. There are some relationships that are less they have nuance to them. They have like ups and downs or whatever. And there might be that I could see feeling about certain people I'd want to tell them how much they mean to me, worried a little bit about how I'd feel after it, after they had it in their hand, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have it in their hand. And then the next time they disappoint you and you're like, eh, maybe I want my letter back. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that can be a little twist to it. So this one, it's going to be gratitude letters with a right of recidivism. There's a condition to it. (laughs) I'm sure it's totally how she meant it to work. (laughs) That's a really lovely story about your dad. I remember when you told me being so moved by that. So it's almost like the military, they were the originals to do these letters of gratitude. It's uh, when, when, I don't know if your kids took these, these trips to um, concentration camps on any of their programs they did. This is so not the same story as you and your dad, but when my kids went on trips that took them to concentration camps, we were asked to write letters to those kids. And it, and it really becomes very emotional on both sides, I think, because the writing of it, it's, it's a real challenge. Like, what's the message you want to give your kid at that moment? They're not expecting the letter and what is this? What is the thing that feels them, like lets them feel like they're hugged at the moment that they're having this very overwhelmingly emotional experience? So it's a, 
I don't want to say a burden because it's also, a, you know, this joyful opportunity to kind of share how much we love our kids. But there was a responsibility in that letter to get it yeah. right and to have it be meaningful for that kid at that moment. And, you know, your kids are young. And so there's a little bit of an eye roll, like, you know, what was that letter about? But then really also, and yet I really loved getting it. So there is a deep power, as Nancy's going to tell us, about pen to paper, you know, and just like having it there. and, And she says, even if you don't mail it, it still has a lot of power and maybe even the same power. I think there'd be an added layer for me that it got read. Same. I was thinking about that. I was like, I don't know. That that feels, I mean, it's kind of like people say, like, if you're upset about something to get it out and put it on paper and stuff like that. But, and I, I can see that that is, that is certainly part of the therapy, but in the case of this gratitude and this letter, yeah, I think I would need that knowledge. Sue, it's reminding me, do you remember in Wexner when we did those letters to our kids? Oh God, that was horrible. <gasps> remember like, how hard uh, it was? What did they call it? It was, it, it was like, um, what we would tell our kids after we've died, what was important to us. I have the letters in my drawer. I still have them. I can't get myself to read them. But it is an exercise about legacy. Like letting totally. kids see yes. what matters to you and what's important to you. And it is an exercise in torture because the very first thing you have to do is think about you not being here. And that is just, for me, it was an overwhelm beyond. Like my kids were little at the time and the thought of like a moment where they would read this would mean that I was no longer here. I just, uh, I know it's like, I always think, um, I don't know if this is overused, but I, I, I love it when I've heard it before is this whole idea of legacy and like planting seeds in a garden that you're likely never to see grow. And I think of that all the time because it's it's beautiful and chilling and scary and inspirational. It's all of those things all at once. And I thought that, I remember writing that letter and I, it's funny, I have not looked at them, Sue, and I have to think where they are, but I remember one very specific piece of one of those letters, which is really like hitting me now in the context. I mean, when did we do those? 15 years ago? and five, maybe four, maybe. Yeah. So 15 years ago, I mean, I had a three-year-old. You had a four-year-old or a five-year-old. I had a potty training kid who was talking about it on the <laughs> <Remember>? elevator. <laughs> yeah, totally. That kid is now it's in college. Moment. So that was a long time ago. Yeah. It but really it was, was. I mean, I I think I, I just got a letter from a friend yesterday and I read it. I got teary. It was like such a, it was mm. just a regular thank you note for something. And one that is like uh, not not unexpected. Like after you do some, you make a party for somebody, you get a thank you note. But it was so personal. And so and, and because I, we were preparing for this today, I was thinking this is a person who does it already. Like an, uh, every, every opportunity, every, every dinner at my house is followed with one of these thank you notes and thank you for our friendship. And every time I'm so incredibly touched by it. So, you know, maybe my commitment. Eh. Here's the other thing. I was thinking about this. I think about this in the context of work all the time. Like, managers, we are always told when we're managing people about telling them how grateful you are and what a good job people do and that no one will ever say, you tell me that too much. And I am often surprised when I say that to a coworker, you know, that the response is so overwhelming. Like they're always like, wow, I thank you for saying that. Like that meant so much to me. Like it feels like 
man, why don't we just do that all the time? (laughs) Because the effect on people is so great and so much greater than I ever anticipate. Maybe that's the way to say it. That's what Nancy's going to tell us later. And that it's, she had a phrase that's so great about how everyone overestimates how awkward it's going to be and underestimates how much it's going to change someone's life. But I would tell you, I think they're, they're, if you ask what touches you the most, it's kind of like the one you didn't expect it from. So like when you get something out of the blue or you get it from a, one of your kids who never says it to you, it's, it bulls you over in a different way than the kids who, kid who's much more emotive. So I think there is a balance to, to kind of parsing out how, if everything someone does, you say, oh my God, thank you so much. That was unbelievable. It starts to be like, hi, how are you? you know, where it loses a little bit of its meaning. And so I think there is probably, I don't know what that, that balance is, but I do wonder that when I'm feeling gratitude, like about everything anybody does to help our business and like, what's the line of not getting too much that it falls on deaf ears. It's like, well, yeah, that's what, that's what Sue says all the time, you know? Yeah. I do think it's, I think there's a different element with the kids and I've seen this where, like, I'll be telling the kids a story, you know, one of the kids in particular, and I'll be like, it was just so kind. Or they'll be telling me something someone did for them, like, oh, my God, that was so kind. Like, that was so kind. And just even just using that word. And it's funny because I've heard the, the kids will be telling me something in interaction. They'll be like, Mom, she was just so kind. So you've, modeled, like, like you've that, modeled it well for your kids. They've they've picked it up. And, and her kids. Yeah, but it's, I mean, kindness is a great thing, right? And just re- taking that, that, Second, literally that second to reflect that, like, that was really kind, like, (laughs) that somebody did that extra. I always think of Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman, do the extra. That was one of his four things. Oh, well, look at you. Look at that memory. That was a long time ago. Well, so here we are about to enter the Thanksgiving holiday. And I would say that our whole conversation kind of opened me up to think about the holiday differently. However you observe, however you feel feel about it at this moment, it's still an opportunity to just kind of pause and say, how do I show someone in what, and in what way do I want to show them that I'm grateful for them? So as we enter into this Thanksgiving celebration, no matter how you celebrate it or how you feel about the holiday, it's still a moment to step back and say, how do I express my gratitude? How do I acknowledge it and how do I express it? And you're going to hear this wonderful story up next with our conversation with Nancy Davis Coe. We can't wait for you to join us. Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, 
and the monsters from The Misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Nancy Davis Coe is a speaker, author, and podcaster whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, and NPR affiliate KQED. Nancy's book, The Thank You Project, Cultivating Happiness, One Letter of Gratitude at a Time, was published in 2019. Nancy covers the years between being hip and breaking one at midlifemixtape.com and on her podcast, Midlife Mixtape. Thanks so much for being here with us. Okay, so Nancy, turning 50 was a really big moment for you, and most of us, frankly, and you had a reaction that led to a plan. Can you share with us your story? I'd be happy to, <laughs> and now 50 so far in my rearview mirrors because I'm double nickels now. I'm like, oh, I was so young then. No, I just thought that felt like a birthday that needed a little extra heft in the, in the celebration. And uh, so what I thought I would do that year was write a letter once a week to someone who had helped, shaped, or inspired me. That was the plan. I just thought, you know, I did not get to this point in my life on my own. I felt very fortunate. You know, I'd been married to my husband for a long time. My kids were in good health. My parents were in good health. And I just thought, you don't take those kinds of things for granted. So the plan was just once a week, write a thank you letter to somebody who has helped, shaped, or inspired me. And that was it. What I never expected was how profoundly and permanently those letters would change the way I look at the world around me. They really helped me become a more positive person, become more actively grateful, and they strengthened the relationships I had with the people to whom I sent the letters. And I didn't set out to write a book or anything like that. This was really just a case of me and did you have, I'm going to write some letters. That's uh, besides it. Besides getting the letters done, obviously, <laughs> was there any other goal? Not really. I mean, I kept, I really like to impress on people. I had no idea what I was doing. It wasn't like I set out to make myself better or anything like that. I just was going to write these thank you letters. And what I found was that you know, first of all, I'd said, okay, I'm turning 50. I'll write 50 letters. I'll do it in a year. It'll give my, give me, you know, give me two weeks off because I'm a Gen X. I'm a slacker. I need to have my vacation time built into things. So that was the plan. And I wrote down that initial list of people to whom I was going to send letters and it was family and close friends. And I got to like 23 names and I thought, I don't even know 50 people. How am I, I don't know who I'm going to write to, but I just thought I'll deal with that, you know, in June because by then it'll, I will have written that many letters. And what happened instead is that each time I sat down to write one of these letters, I would find myself feeling so much better at the end of the writing process. And I would get this real sense of 
calm and peace. And and what I learned later in, in researching the book is that it's called elevation, this sensation of warmth that fills your chest when you've when you've written one of these letters that tells someone why they've made a positive difference in your life. And so I would finish the letter and I'd think, ah, oh, who do I get to write to next? And when I wrote the book, the book's not a collection of my letters because who cares who I wrote to, but there's snippets so you could get some ideas. But it's more of a blueprint for readers to be able to do this themselves and to think about the kinds of people they might want to write to in their lives. And I really wanted to include the science of it because I couldn't figure out why every Friday, I wrote my letters Friday afternoon, why every Friday I felt so good. What is the, why is it so easy to repeat over and over? And it turns out there's this thing called positive recall bias. And it's the tendency that we can cultivate in ourselves to notice the good things around us. We also all are equipped with negative recall bias, and that serves a purpose too. That's the thing that tells you to go get your mask before you go into a crowded place or to wash your hands after you've you know, been, been somewhere where you were touching a lot of things that other people were touching. So negative recall bias serves a purpose, but the problem is getting stuck there and looking around all day long for things that are bad or scary or negative. And what research has shown is the best way to handle that is to cultivate your positive recall bias. So the way it worked for me is that I knew I was going to write these letters every Friday afternoon, right? So I would have a name of somebody, my grad school, my grad school roommate, Pam. And I would spend all week thinking about Pam. And I'd be walking my dog in the Oakland Hills or I'd be cooking dinner. And I would think, oh, there was the time she lent me her car in grad school, which was actually her mom's minivan. We were not, we we were like the dorkiest grad school people of, of all time. We drove a giant maroon minivan, but you know, she let me go grocery shopping with that. Or she introduced me, she set up the first date with the guy who I would eventually marry. And all week long, I'd marinate in these good memories of my friend. And then I'd sit down and write the letter. And that whole process, just the the ruminating, the thinking, the mem- the, the remembering, all of that is actually enhancing positive recall bias. It's literally we rewiring your brain to be more efficient at looking for the good things around you. And so with each letter, I was getting better and better at picking out positive things and noticing, just taking the time to notice the things in the people who I knew were beneficial to me, who had helped me, had had made a difference in my life. So there was very little foresight that went into this, but there were huge benefits that came out of this project. I'm curious about the writing piece. Like, how important is it, the actual act of writing versus, you want to call 50 people, you want to, you know, does that play into it? I'm curious about that. Yes, it does. This is my argument for the analog letter. And let me just reassure you, I didn't handwrite mine. I love when people do that. I know a lot of people who bought my book have done that and all respect to them. My handwriting is terrible and my hands get crampy. And what I want, what I wanted was a process that I could easily replicate because I didn't want to set ground rules for myself that I was going to not do after the second letter. So I typed my letters and you're allowed to type your letters, but I do think the physicality of the letter matters. And here's why. First of all, we live in a digital age where everything disappears, right? You know, the Snapchat, the Instagram story, stuff that could be meaningful just goes away after a little bit of time. So a physical letter that is basically a catalog, an inventory of why you matter to me, why I care about you, why I'm grateful to you, why having you in my life has changed mine, 
that's pretty rare. And it's the kind of thing that you can keep in your purse or put in your bedside table and reread when you're having a low day. And there's something kind of, at this point, magical about having that written down and tangible, something that you can hold on to. And it's, I know we're going to, you know, we're talking with your teen magazine, so I'm going to tell you, your kids may be <laughs> more unfamiliar with that that kind of an, an artifact than anybody. And that's why I think it matters a lot to teens and to kids to get these letters and to write these letters. The other thing that I include, so I broke in the book, I break down the process into three steps, see, say, and savor. See is just what I talked about, all that ruminating, all that remembering why somebody's been so good to you. Say is writing the letter. And the savor part is, Again, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but I had decided I was going to keep a copy of every letter I wrote so that I could look back on it. And at the end, I had this kind of, you know, catalog of 50 letters I'd written. That I wrote the letters in 2016. I still look at that book all the time. I, I just took it to a copy shop and had it, you know, printed out and, and bound because it makes me feel good still five years later, opening that up and remembering, oh, that, you know, my nephew Tristan, he's so cool. And this is why I love him. And this is why he's been great to me. Or, you know, my daughter's pediatrician, you know, this is why she made a difference in my life. And so I think the physicality matters, not just to the recipient, but to the writer. Do you ever get nervous sending people letters, like feeling like exposed and vulnerable? So no, because I am a super gregarious, very outgoing person. So I had an early copy, an early version of the manuscript read by friends of mine who are wired differently from me and had exactly that reaction. So I know I know what you're talking about and I'm really glad you brought it up. I had a couple of friends say, what if I send a letter and the person who receives it says, who is this person and what do you mean I changed your life? I don't even remember who you are. So it, no, I did not worry about that, but I know that that is a pretty common concern. And what I would say is that there are no <laughs> thank you note police and you don't have to send every letter. So I, first of all, I do really encourage you to send the letters that you've written when you feel comfortable enough to do this. One of the pieces of research I found was so interesting is that people tend to overestimate how awkward they will feel sending a letter mm. and they underestimate how positive the recipient will feel to get this. So especially after the year and a half that we've had, or what are we up to now, two years? I don't even know, what is time? You know, so many people are literally physically isolated. So many people have heightened levels of anxiety and loneliness and and fear. Mm. And to get a letter in the mailbox that tells you that you ha are great and appreciated, how great. I mean, who wouldn't want that right now? But that being said, if you write a letter to someone and you don't feel comfortable enough to send it, just write it. Because all of these psychological and physiological benefits that you get from a deliberate expression of gratitude, and there's tons of them that I talk about in the book, you know, better sleep quality, better car, you know, better cardiac health, better quality of um, uh, people with asthma can control their asthma better after they've written a thank you letter. There's, I mean, there's, it's crazy beneficial, but you can reap all those benefits by writing the letter. It's always nice when people tell you that they received it and they loved it and whatever else they're going to tell you, but it's, 
your benefits are not conditioned on that. So to your point about not knowing 50 people, I felt the same way. I'm not sure if you heard that part of the beginning of the discussion, but as, as my positive recalls, uh, recall bias got stronger, as I got more practiced at writing the letters, I got better at figuring out who else to write to. And so that's why, for instance, my daughter's pediatric nurse got a letter because I, at that point, had written, I don't know, 22, 25 letters. And I thought, boy, if you think about people who helped shaped, inspired, this lady was amazing because she was at every single well visit I did with my two kids for you know a total of 21 years. And she, the pediatricians always cycled through that practice, but Jen was constant. And so I could say to her, does she look okay? And Jen knew my girls well enough to say, you know what, she's fine. You don't need to worry. Or yeah, why don't you come on in? You know, I think we should talk. I want to see her. And what a relief as a mom to have a medical professional who knows your kids as well as you do and yet has a medical degree. You know, so that was a person who I didn't expect to write to. And then referring back to this idea of writing but not sending, I also started thinking about, well, you know, I lived abroad. I was an immigrant in Germany for a couple of years, and I had a boyfriend at the time who was German who helped me file my taxes, understand why you pay bills at the post office, you know, helped me understand all this stuff about this this country I was living in where I didn't know anybody else. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to send him a letter. We're both married to other people now. I don't need to be talking to that guy all the time. But I was very grateful for the time that he was in my life. I know that I would have had a worse quality of life had I not known him. So I wrote him a thank you letter and I didn't mail it. And then I wrote a thank you letter to a lousy boss that I had because from him, <laughs> I learned how to... Now, this isn't about settling scores. I, you know, I learned how to not be a terrible manager by having a terrible manager. And so, you know, once you realize that nobody cares whether or not you send these letters you can really think expansively about how you have been helped in your life, how you've been shaped. And that's that's also when I started writing letters to cities I'd lived in. I mean, Stephanie and I were talking about my hometown of Rochester, New York. I wrote a thank you letter to Rochester because so much of the person I am at age 55 living in California stems from the 18 years I spent growing up in the snowiest, coldest place where people are very down to earth and super nice. And we don't get, you know, we're pretty down to earth people. And I wrote to Oakland, the city where I live now, because there's so much of my personality that I think comes from living 20, almost 25 years here. I love that you wrote to like cities and inanimate objects. Like it's, it's, it's so funny. It's so, it's, it's inspiring. All right, so you referenced our kids and like not being familiar with maybe, you know, uh, handwriting and doing it the, you know, we, we talked about that earlier. Did your own kids do any of what you did, take on any of this process? I would say, first of all, it's like the cobbler's the cobbler's children who have no shoes. I try. Nobody asked for their mother to become a writer, so I try not to put any expectations on my own kids of what they're relationship is to any of my writing. So I'll just preface it with that. My girls are 23 and 20 now. My kids are really great thank you note writers. They always have been. In fact, my younger daughter's birthday is Christmas Day and we celebrate Christmas. And she gets her thank you notes for her birthday and Christmas out well before I do every single year. Like they're on it. They are really good. And I know my older daughter is a great writer of letters. So she went to college on the East Coast. She lives with us in California. And she often, she and her girlfriends mail 
physical letters back and forth to each other, which I think is the dearest thing because they're also on FaceTime all day. But, you know, there's something to that, to the letter writing. I don't think my kids have written gratitude letters to to people yet, but they're also in their 20s. And I think it takes a while for you to develop that perspective to look back and figure out, you know, some of the big, some of the bigger letters you want to write. That being said, I love talking about this project with school groups. I've got another one coming up next week, in fact, where I'm working with uh, high schoolers to write these letters. And I've done this um, as part of end of year, end of year celebrations with eighth graders and, and high schoolers. Because it gives kids space so that I have a lot of writing prompts I give, you know, tell me about something specific, something specific that this person taught you. What's a time that you had so much fun with this person that you'll always remember that day? You know, if you had one phone a friend, what's the, what's the problem that you would call this person for? And it just encourages kids, I think, to sit with this question, sit with this notion of how we are supported by the people around us. We might not ever stop and think about it, but if you really just take a beat and think, how, how has this friend made my life better? What is the thing that I know that I wouldn't have if I, if I weren't friends with them? It makes your life feel so much richer. So, you know, we're a few days away from Thanksgiving and this whole idea of gratitude no matter how you feel about the holiday, is something that, you know, there's always there's never a bad time to talk about gratitude. So if families are convening and you're thinking of like a way to just highlight to your kids that it's a moment and a pause to think about something you're grateful for, maybe there's a piece in that where you could have some writing gratitude letters. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that's a wonderful practice. I know uh, I, I know one reader uh, had a grandma, uh, there was a grandmother in the family who was going to be celebrating a birthday and everybody in the family wrote a thank you letter to that person and they presented to them to her all at once. What a wonderful thing on, on Thanksgiving Day, have everybody pick one person that they're going to send, write a letter to and read it out loud at the table or, you know, just a letter to a letter that they write and don't send. They don't have to share it. You know, there's lots of different ways to do it. But I think getting kids into the habit of thinking about the specific ways in which the people around them have helped them, you know, and and expressing that in writing for themselves or to share is a really powerful habit to start cultivating early on. Okay, we're going to wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about raising teenagers? Oh. Biggest myth about raising teenagers, that they stay that way. I mean, (laughs) uh, you know, I feel like everybody should remember that teenagers are still children and they're figuring stuff out. And sometimes the skills we got good at when our kids were two and three are very helpful again when your kids are 14 and 15. I will just say as someone whose kids have graduated out of the teen levels, I am delighted to spend time with my adult children. That's that's the myth, is that, you know, I see all this stuff like, oh, I'm so sad. My kids are getting older. I'm so sad. I'm like, dude, it just gets better and better. And your kids are only going to be kids for 18 years. They're going to be adult, your adult children for so many more than that, God willing. And how great is it to have raised someone whose company you really enjoy spending time with you get and you get years and years of it to come so it really you'll get it'll you'll get through it and you know I think adult children are awesome I love it Nancy Davis Co thank you so much for being here with us thank you very much for having me I appreciate it 
joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.